For our scripture reading, let us turn to Genesis chapter 15. I'll read the whole chapter. It's 20 verses. Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring, indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look, now toward heaven, and count the stars, if you are able to, to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees and gave you and to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two, down the middle, and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. Now when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. And he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age, but in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites and the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. May the Lord bless this reading to our uh, good and holy understanding. We've been doing a series on the family, and you may wonder how in the world does this passage relate to the family, but it relates to the family in that it relates to the head of the family, namely Abram. Uh, our fathers, the heads of our families, are extremely important to the well-being of the family. 
we, uh, as men, we often feel overwhelmed because we have some sense of this. And we, as we look at ourselves, we see that we are, are such foozles, just uh, silly creatures sometimes as we look at ourselves. We say, God, how, how can you place me in this role? How can, you, how can you place all of this responsibility on me? Well, Abraham had the same issue. Abraham had the same concerns. And we have here this intimate um, occasion where God shows him that there's more going on here than meets the eye, that God stands behind the whole of our lives to be a strength to us. And he gives him this great theophany. Now, the word theophany is a two, two, a ju, ju, coming together of two words, one meaning God, theo, and the other pha, uh, from, from the word phanos, which means a showing or a revealing of something. So it's a, a revelation of God. Uh, theophany is a revelation of God himself. And this is one of the most least understood texts in the Old Testament, but one of the most powerful, pointing to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and to the work that he would do. And... Um, it seems very distant here. They're talking about some sort of a sacrifice here, and it's a kind of a mystical thing. It's There's no antecedents for it in the Bible that we can say, well, this has gone before, so we understand it this way. It's a, it's a theophany or a revelation of God of himself that is just totally remarkable. But in, in its uh, significance, it shines through to us in the same way that it did to Abraham, to inspire us, to show us something of the greatness of God. Now, I want you to imagine yourselves in a dark room. Perhaps you've been asleep all night and you wake up too early in the morning and it's still dark out, or at least you think that, but then you realize that your drapes or your shades have been pulled and, and it's blocking out the light. But you see, as you look at that window, you see one small shaft of light coming through that tells you something about the world outside that you can't really see because of the shades or the drapes. But you see that one shaft of light, and it, it shines through, and in that shaft, you find all the excitement that is waiting for you outside that you just can't see right now. This is that kind of occasion in the Bible where God shines a shaft of light through the life of Abraham that he could not see. The, the text opens with Abraham. It's a typical day. And God speaks to him, which is revelation enough. It's remarkable enough. But God speaks to him and shows him that he exists. But at that point, Abraham brings to God, as we might as fathers, he brings to God his worry or his complaint because God has made these great promises to Abraham, but to this point in his life, all he has to show for that is the, the inner revelation that God has given to him, these, these messages that God has given to him. And um, he's hanging on them, he's trusting in them, and yet he, as a, a normal human being, he's looking for more. I mean, he's out here, think about this, he's hundreds of miles, if not thousands, from the place from which he came. 
He's on this mighty adventure that God has pulled him into. He's got his uh, this larger family with him, but it's mainly a family of, of strangers, of people like Eleazar here that love him and that have come to him for leadership, that see in him a great significance and a great um, illumination or a great revelation from God. They see leadership in Abram. And yet Abram has no children of his own. God has made him promises contingent upon him having children. He has no children. And uh, we often have in our families, we often have faith in God, but we, we have faith up to a limit because we see these promises that God has given us, and yet we don't see this being fulfilled in our lives. Sometimes we worry on the level of the church. We think, well, God, you've made these promises to fill the earth with your glory, and here we are in a church, we're struggling, we can't see much glory from where we are. What we see where we are is struggle and timidity and, uh, and uh, incompleteness, in, incapacity, where you have promised us capacity and power and all of these kinds of things. Well, this was going on in the mind of the leader of the family of that day, Abram. And so when God does appear to him, Abram pours out his heart to the Lord. Um, he's saying, in a sense, Lord, I trust you. I know you, and yet I have so little of what you have promised. And uh, that's the way the text begins. Now, the first point in the outline in the bulletin <coughs> is the, the mystery of hope. And as leaders of our families, both mothers and dads, we need to be able to, to uh, enlighten or entertain our children and each other. Fathers, you need to try to entertain your wife with this, vice versa with the wives to the husbands and the children. We need to entertain each other with hope for the future. In the same way that Abraham had these promises given unto himself, but not the fulfillment yet, he wasn't, a, he, wasn't a, he, he had left Ur of the Chaldees, but there was so much that was left unsaid and undone and undelivered. And yet, uh, Abraham uh, had to be pulled along and maintained in his course, buoyed up, if you will, sustained by hope. And all of us need that in our lives. We, it is a dark soul that has no hope. Um, in the New Testament, it says faith, hope, and charity, faith, hope, and love sustain us. They are the great virtues of our lives. If we have faith, if we have hope, if we have uh, charity. Um, <clears throat> I, I, I'll never forget, I've shared it once, once in a while with you, but I heard a sermon earlier in my life uh, on using a, the illustration of John Bunyan in his story of Pilgrim's Progress. And uh, as, as Pilgrim was crossing this deep river, um, we believe it to be a representative of the river, I mean, of the, the, the river of death, uh, he's sinking beneath the waves. Uh, uh, and uh, he, in other words, he, he sees his heavenly destination, and yet as he attempts to cross this deep water, he, he's sinking beneath the water, and he's, he just doesn't seem to have the strength to keep himself buoyed up. And at that point, he's approached 
uh, in the water by hope. And uh, uh, hope catches hold of him and gives him the strength to continue on through the river of death. All of us will have to face that river ourselves someday. But I've never forgotten that illustration because uh, Bunyan pulled out the, the colored in the characters and uh, uh, it was a very poignant illustration of how hope is like, almost like another person to us who can come along and can encourage us with his hopeful sentences that would uh, save us from ourselves and our darkness and our fears and that kind of thing. And so I share it with you all once again, just because it was a great illustration that has helped me any number of times. We all, brothers and sisters, we need to have hope in our lives regarding the Lord. Not just the fact that he exists, but the fact that he loves us. And that he's determined to save us. That he's determined to deliver to us the things that he has promised. Without hope, we may sink beneath the waves. We may give up the struggle. And so the Bible exhorts us to hope in the Lord. To seek him, but to hope in the Lord that we might press on. And we see in this text that that is much of what the Lord is doing for Abraham. As Abraham cried out to the Lord, what will you give me? In verse 2, I go childless. Um, uh, the word of the Lord comes to him again and again. And each time he points to the fact that uh, he will show him by what happens here in this case. He will show him the ground of his hope. As I said, this turns out to be a very mysterious, wonderfully transcendental, mysterious sacrament, sacrifice that is done before him. But God is saying to Abraham in this situation, he's saying, because I have done this for you, you should know that I'm going to go all the way and bring to pass in your life everything that I have promised. And inasmuch as this points to Christ, then we can think in our lives, when we're looking for hope, the work of our Lord Jesus Christ is that great signal to us from our Lord that everything that he said to us, he means, and everything that he means will come to pass. Um, we see in the illustration then, point two, we see the mystery of Christ, but I just want you to hold on to this idea that this has to do with the leadership of the family and it has to do with the hope that uh, is like the light, that shaft of light that I began speaking about at the beginning of the message. This has to do with that hope and that shaft of light that, that, uh, that goes through our darkness and is able to touch our hearts and our souls and minister unto us. Well, let's look at what happens here because verses 12 through 18 describe for us the mystery of the Lord Jesus Christ. What we see here is that um, the God tells Abraham to collect these animals and um, that he, he, uh, he has Abraham cut them in two. And <clears throat> uh, from verse 9 and following, 
And he, he brings all of these to the Lord and he cuts them in two down the middle. So you get the you get the picture here of these animals that are cleft in half. Now, uh, in my in my youth, my working my father's meat company, um, I have seen carcasses that were cut in half, and uh, and uh, in fact, in my ba- the basement, I should have brought it in as a as a uh, something to show you. But I've got a saw, what they call a bone saw. But it's it's a it's a real big bone saw. It's about it's about this long, and it has a, it has a blade in it that's kind of like a, a blade that would you might use in a uh, for a metal a metal saw. So it's got very fine teeth, um, but uh, it's a little bit more it's a little bit more jagged. The teeth are a little bit more jagged than in a metal saw or a band saw, uh, but. Uh, uh, they're not nothing like a, just nothing like a wood saw where the teeth are quite large because this is meant to cut through bone, and you you hang the animal up by its front legs, and of course the, in the slaughtering process the head is gone of the animal, but you start at the neck, you start at the top of the spine, and you just work your way right down through. And of course I I never dealt with live animals. I only dealt with uh, with animals that had been uh, processed and uh, they were the meat was all clean and everything. There was no blood at all. <laughs> so as much as this illustration may sound sound a little gri- grimy, uh, it really it really is not meant to be that way. But um, but I, I I did and uh, uh, this went from beef these big carcasses of beef down to uh, chickens. We do we do hundreds of chickens sometimes at a time and you put them on a bandsaw. You'd have a bandsaw going. And you'd hold the two legs, and boom, you're right through the band, right down the spine, and uh, you cut the animals uh, right in half. And you'd have to do it. You have to do hundreds at a time, and they're a very dangerous operation because one one miss, and you'd lose a finger or a hand. So you paid attention, believe me, on doing this. But I, I have a, in my mind, I have a very clear picture of animals cleft in half. And so this is what Abraham did. You can do it. You can if they they didn't have band saws in those days, but you can do it also with a big axe. Uh, you can you can just uh, chop at the spine, and if you're if you if you have some dexterity to yourself, you can um, you can cleave an animal in half. And so somehow using one of these processes, this is what happened. And the animals were cut in half and laid on top of this offering place. Um, it says that uh, some vultures tried to come down on the carcasses and uh, and uh, take the meat, take the food for food, but Abraham drove drove them away. I, I think that's a reference to um, the satanic and just the the forces of evil that would take the sacrifice of the Lord and do use it for their own purposes. But no, they they had no part in that. Now, in verse twelve, it says, "Now when the sun was going down." A deep sleep fell upon Abram. A deep sleep, not just a regular sleep, but a deep sleep where he was uh, was totally out of it. But then, in his deep sleep, there was a, a sense of horror that came over him and great darkness. Why was this? Well, it was because of the presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord. People say, oh, I want to see Jesus. I want to have Jesus come and be close to me. Well, there's a dimension of the Lord, namely his holiness, 
the divine presence of the Lord, which is very, very scary indeed. Why is it so scary? Well, first of all, God is God and we are men. He is a creature that is totally uh, immense, who knows all things, uh, who does not, uh, does not take up a location or space like we do. He is a living spirit. And then he is altogether righteous and we are not. He is holy in the sense of righteousness and goodness. And we are creatures by our sin that deserve to be judged. It's scary to have this kind of God draw near to you or to me. It's, it's terrifying. And so that's what Abraham sensed. He was in this deep sleep. God uh, anesthetized him like he might have an operation. He put him to sleep because he knew that Abraham could not bear the naked presence of the Lord in immediate in his immediate presence without being totally undone. And so he also closed this instance with a great darkness. Now in the midst of this, he speaks to Abraham, saying something about the word of God and the, the language that God has us to use. Even in the midst of the most mysterious, uh, amazing cases, God speaks to his creatures. Um, the mystics of mystical religions like Hinduism and Shinto, the, the mystics believe that the highest states of mankind are of unconsciousness, where we are feeling rather than speaking. But this, the Bible teaches us that God uh, uses the mysterious times, like in this case. But the, 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 the mystery or the, the non-rational is not more sophisticated or more transcendental or more a higher experience than the rational. Here is God in the midst of this transcendental, mysterious experience speaking to Abraham. And he says to Abraham, he was meeting him exactly where his need was. He said, no, certainly. No, certainly that your descendants, and he goes on to describe what will happen to his descendants. That they will go through a captivity in Egypt and he will bring them forth. He will bring them forth with great possessions, it says at the end of verse 14, uh, into the land where Abraham is sojourning right now, but this will be a later day. And he also gives Abraham a personal a revelation. He says, for you, you will go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they, that is your children, will return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God is amazing in his revelation. He details for Abraham how even his coming into the land has something to do with the judgment of the pagans who are already on that land, the Amorites. And he says that the the, the uh, wickedness or the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full, meaning that he will use Abraham's family, his children and his children's children, he will use them as a judgment upon the Amorites because they have lived in ungodliness against and in spite of the presence of the Lord. But these are just sidelights or side issues to what's going on here. Because then in verse 17, it says, and it came to pass 
when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between these pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Now, uh, what we what we understand here is that God uh, showed Abraham that He would make a provision for him. Uh, he would He was rep- God was representing Himself as this the sacrifice that lay upon the altar. Deep mystery here. How could God make a sacrifice of Himself? How could God then? If if God was splayed apart like these half beasts, how could God then survive this burning fire pot that passed between the pieces? Well, you see, this was also symbolic of the fact that God would bring a judgment upon himself. It's astounding. How can God bring a judgment upon himself. But with the Lord Jesus Christ, we see how exactly how this happened. How our Lord Jesus Christ is portrayed in these, 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 these bodies that are splayed in half and laying upon the altar. And then this burning furnace, uh, this burning furnace passes between the pieces, a uh, furnace uh, which would consume anything. But the per- the pieces are, are not totally consumed. The, the the fiery fire pot goes between the pieces, right down the middle, right between them. When Jesus cried out on the cross, "My God, My God, Thou hast forsaken me," we get a p- picture of how the burning judgment of the Father came upon the Son, and how the Son was willing to bear that like these pieces that are laid upon the altar. A smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. And it's out of that, you see, that God says, he made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates uh, and uh, all the peoples that now live there. Now you see how the one thing is contingent on the other. The promise is contingent upon this uh, mysterious sacrifice, which Abraham saw in his sleep, in this drugged state that he was in. God, uh, Abraham saw this happening between him, and he realized that the one was dependent upon the other or contingent upon the other. God had come to Abraham and he said, I have these promises for you, and I will deliver them. I have told you that you shall have a son, you shall have a family. And that all of that is contingent upon the sacrifice upon the altar, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of these things were so far off, and yet God paints a powerful picture of them to Abraham so that what? So that he can be the proper patriarch that he can be the proper father, that he can inspire his family, that he can have absolute faith himself. Explaining to his children when Isaac finally came, he could explain to Isaac the foundation of his faith. He could say to Isaac, Isaac, do not doubt these promises. God came to me on this spot. 
and he put me to sleep. And then it was an awesome kind of thing. I can barely describe it to you. But in my, uh, in my sleep or in my uh, unconsciousness, it came through loudly and clearly that God was going to do these things. And so you, Isaac, must hang on to this as an article of your faith. Do not deviate. Do not turn to the right or turn to the left. The living God has chosen us. The living God has chosen us as patriarchs to bring a people to ex into existence. The very elect who would convey this message and take care of it until finally the sacrifice would come to pass and there would be a child born unto us who would have himself slayed, splayed open before the watching world and have the torch of God's wrath, the Father's wrath, come between into his very soul. And that's on the basis of that that we can have hope of heaven and eternal life uh, today. So, first of all, the mystery of hope. Secondly, I mean the, the mystery of hope. Secondly, the mystery of Christ. Uh, and um, thirdly, I want to begin apply these things because parents need to inspire their children with what I call the transcendental. Uh, our children need to know that our God is not just a, the, a here and now thing. He's not like some kind of uh, idol that we might put upon our tables and say, well, there's our God. No, the living God is, uh, is high and lifted up, but he has made a number of appearances like this. He came again when they were in Egypt and bringing them out of Egypt and the Egyptians were perched there with their mighty chariots ready to vanquish them all. But God vanquished Egypt in the midst of the sea. God has made these mighty appearances. God calls us to hang on to our faith, to let these appearances of him be foundations of our faith. The, the greatest, the greatest uh, display that God has made in world history was the display of his son on Golgotha, where even this wonderful, perfect man, the Lord Jesus Christ, went through the agony of the crucifixion and then was raised up again from the dead in an amazing fashion. God wants us to hang our faith on these things, and he wants us to inspire our children with these things. We are not just people of the here and now. We are not just material objects. We are people of faith. And so you've got to, as moms and dads, you've got to, you've got to uh, try your hardest to regale your children and each other with this story that we have laid out before us now, and which then continues on through the text of Scripture. Um, we, need to, we need to inspire each other with the transcendental. We need to re regale our, each other with the covenant. Verse 18, it seems like almost contradictory that in the midst of this tremendous drama that God would mention the word covenant. At the end of verse 18, or the middle of verse 18, on that same day, as the, as the smoking oven passes through the halves, it says on the same day God made a covenant with Abraham, saying, what in the world does this legal document, of this, of this objective reality of a covenant, have to do with all that's going on here, the smoking pot, the fire pot? Well, 
God wants us to have a binding agreement, a, a, a document. He wants us to know that behind all of what he says, there is a heavenly document, a covenant that was made between Father and Son and Holy Spirit to save a people unto himself. It's not just something that he says. It's something that exists. It's the foundation of all of our lives. We go through these lives of ours. We have children. We get different jobs. We build different houses. We move here and we move there. But through all of these various changes and vicissitudes, there's a covenant that drives us. There's a covenant that is our strength, that is our substance. And this covenant goes back to the living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And it's as strong as their relationship. It's as strong as their agreement together. And it will not be broken. It will not be broken. We are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God himself is our strength. We need to encourage each other. Fifthly, with family eschatology. Verse 18b. Uh, God says to your descendants, immediately after talking about covenant, he says, to your descendants I have given this land. God's promises are, 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 are fulfilled through these little children that we have, these children which, who are impotent and weak and foolish until they grow into impotent, weak, foolish adults <laughs> like ourselves. But God wants us to understand that there is a, an ongoing development of these things. Now that's where the word eschatology points to the future, but it points to the development of our lives through time, from the present to the future and on into the future. We, we are an eschatological people. We are not just people who exist now. We're people to whom God has made promises. And God wants us to see ourselves, not just living now, but he wants, us to, to, he wants us to see ourselves as developing and living through time with a purpose and an ultimate destination. One of the great, there's a huge difference when it comes to the concept of time between paganism and Christianity. In paganism, Time just goes around and around and around and around and around. It's a, a hopeless regurgitation of cycles, and it never goes anywhere. It's kind of like the Star Wars movies, where they just, they're bad guys and good guys, but they just keep going around and around. And as soon as the bad guys of one feature are overcome, then there's another feature that comes up, and it just goes around and around and around. That's different with Christianity. In Christianity, there's a beginning and an end, there's creation. And then there's consummation. And what, what goes on, what goes on forever is heaven. But the, the, that's part of the destination. It's part of the fulfillment of our lives. And God wants us to have that in our minds. And so even on occasion like this where there's all of this mysticism, all this mystery, he's still talking about descendants and family and how this works into the process. He even relates this in the Ten Commandments, the Fifth Commandment, honor thy father and thy mother. This is the great commandment that, that builds continuity between one generation and the next. It's the conduit or the pipeline of faith worked into the Ten Commandments. 
How are we to maintain our faith except we honor our fathers and our mothers? We honor those who have gone before us in faith. And we then will pick up his children. We will pick up their baton as they pass it to us and we will carry it. And then we will pass it on to our children. But this only works if we honor father and mother and our perpetual and our dedication to the eschatology of Christ. And we see that in this 15th chapter. And then lastly, even though we see no ornate description of the church in this text, we see we see that, that this is talking about the church, isn't it? It's talking about the sacrifice of Christ, which is the foundation of the church. And it's talking about the people of God and this family that will uh, will will come to pass. And so as he talks about the sacrifice, we see, and when it's brought to our attention, we see immediately, yes, the church was there in Abraham. Abraham is sometimes called the father of the faithful, the father of the church, the patriarch of the Old Testament church. And so at the heart of the church is the sacrifice of Christ. And the obtaining of the church, the formation of the church, is in God's eye as he speaks with Abraham about the sacrifice. What is the sacrifice for? It's to obtain a people. It's to obtain these children that God speaks of to Abraham. And as the children take up the faith, they form the church of the living God and ultimately the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your family will not survive if you don't regale it with the stories of the mystery of God. Your family needs to be more than a one-dimensional kind of people. Your family needs to be a four-dimensional people. Space and, uh, uh, space and time, but also the future. Also the world of the living God. When Francis Schaeffer wrote his famous book in the 1960s, he used the illustration of the upper story to illustrate what he was talking about, what was so important. He said, the pagans, people without faith, they just have a one-story house. There's no second story to it. But he said, Christianity has an upper story where we obtain meaning and significance and hope. And it's all dependent upon the living God. So let us learn from this mysterious story of God's blessing Abraham and uh, putting, he's tutoring the father of the family. Let us understand something about the significance of faith for the family. We must have it or our family's founder. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we pray that thou wouldst not leave us confused as people by either a lack of faith or a lack of understanding of thy greatness and of thy transcendency, of the fact that while we see and hear many things here, we can touch things here in this world, 
Yet there are the most important things of our existence are not the things that we can see and hear and touch, but thine existence, O Lord, and uh, thou dost not always appear to us so that we can hear thee and see thee, but especially in the Bible, thou hast left us a deposit of all of these magical, unbelievable occurrences where thou didst appear and thou didst give us a foundation for our faith. Bless us, O Lord, in thy magnificence and in the mystery of these past occasions. Help us to be inspired by them. Help us to hope in them. Help us to be propelled forward by them. And help us ultimately, Lord, to luxuriate in them as we luxuriate, luxuriate in our heavenly home that thou hast prepared for us by thy redemption. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.